Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, as we stand, let us pray together. We do indeed pray, our Father, that by your Spirit, the breath of God, you would do this work in us of bringing us uh, to new life, of purifying us, of giving our heart a desire for you. And we pray as we now read your word, inspired by that same spirit, uh, that you would again do that work in us. Give us the motivation uh, to do our part, to desire you above all things. And we ask things this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do please sit down. Let me encourage you uh, to turn back in your Bibles, um, uh, not to Revelation 21, but to chapters 2 and 3, where we will begin uh, before going to chapter 21. Uh, page 1234 is the page number. Uh, you might also like to uh, dig out this uh, uh, handout that's been um, uh, just uh, uh, slipped inside the service order, um, so you'll be able to see where we're going. And if you like doing these things, you can take some notes uh, as well. Revelation chapter 21 is the chapter we're on as we continue looking through uh, the book of Revelation. It is 29 years ago to the day, on the 25th of March 1983, that I became a Christian. Uh, I knew it was a huge and uh, important step and I realised that it would make a difference for eternity. I knew all of that when I became a Christian, but looking back I had no idea just what a difference following Christ would make in shaping the rest of my life, not least of all uh, to be standing here today doing this. As I look back to those early days, I am hugely grateful uh, to the Lord for putting across my path people who taught me well. Uh, But it didn't start off that way. Having become a Christian at an evangelistic event that my brother invited me to, uh, some miles away from where I lived, I started attending a church in my hometown, uh, a church that I just knew of. Uh, But it wasn't a church that taught the Bible faithfully, not that I understood any of that at the time. Uh, The minister of the church was a kind man, but not a Bible teacher. And I still remember him saying this to me one day, um, some Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. He wasn't having a go at me, he was just making a general point. Some Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any any earthly use. I wonder if you've heard that said. Some Christians are so focused on heaven that they never get on with life in the real world. That's what I was taught early on. But as we'll see this morning, the Bible says quite the opposite. In the real world, unless we are heavenly minded, we will be of no earthly use. For the real world, as we were hearing in our prayers, is a cruel and painful world, full of tragedies and heartaches. And for the Christian, the real world is against us. For we live in a world in rebellion to God and in conflict with his people. And so the Bible is very clear that we need to be heavenly minded to be able to stand in this world and make a difference that counts. For as we are heavenly minded, as we have our eyes fixed on what is to come, we find the motivation to cope with all the rubbish the world has to throw at us now. And we also find the motivation to continue to stand up for Christ, even though it may cost us our life. And then we'll have a huge impact on the world. Uh, You'll see it right through the New Testament, this heavenly mindedness. Paul writes to the Colossians, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And he goes on to say, that's how you'll live a godly life in this world. 
Uh, Peter, writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith, begins his first letter saying, Praise God, through Jesus Christ you have a guaranteed inheritance in heaven, so keep going. And that's what we see John writing here in the book of Revelation, and when we get to it in a moment, chapter 21. Revelation, you see, is written to Christians in the real world, and John says to persevere and endure through all the hardships and struggles in this world. Fix your eyes on the heavenly future that God has in store for you. And the Christians John was writing to had serious issues to contend with. We know all about them in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, page 1, 2, 3, 4. For example, the Christians in Smyrna, uh, in chapter 2, verse 8, Uh, They were suffering persecution. If you look at verse 10, you'll see, even to the point of death. Just as it's happening all through the world today, not least of all in northern Nigeria. Listen to the testimony of Bishop Ben Kwashi, Archbishop of Jos in northern Nigeria. He has suffered numerous threats on his life. His house and church have been burned down just because he's a Christian. His wife has been beaten and raped, left for dead, and she's now half blind. Some of his colleagues have been murdered. To keep standing for Christ in that situation, you need to be sure of heaven. Asked how persecution has affected the way he lives, Archbishop Ben Quashi says, I long for souls to get into heaven. As the Apostle John wrote, some were suffering physically because they were Christian. Others, other Christians, other churches, were struggling under the pressure of false teaching. Uh, the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1. The church in Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12. The church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 18. All struggling uh, with false teaching coming among them. Now, please don't understand the devastating effect false teaching has on the church. Archbishop Ben Quashi, again, very interesting this coming from him. He says, it is false teaching, not persecution, that kills the church. Very striking. False teaching encourages us to think wrong thoughts about God and gives us a license to live wrong lives in the world. Now look at chapter 2, verse 20, the church in Thyatira. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. And just as it was then, so today, false teaching in the church gives people freedom to live sexually immoral lives, lives that deny Christ and rob people of heaven. But it is hard to keep battling against false teaching. See the word there in verse 20, you tolerate false teaching. It wasn't that the whole church was following this uh, false teaching, but some of them, they were just tolerating it. They were allowing this person to be in there. You see, it wears you down when you're constantly correcting falsehood. So what will keep us standing against false teaching? A clear vision of heaven, seeing what's at stake. Seeing that if we do not overcome false teaching, if we give in to false teaching, people will not spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Some of them were suffering physically because they were Christians. Some in the churches were battling with this pressure of false teaching. And others had life so easy they were dying of overindulgence, of luxury. Look over to chapter 3 and verse 17. The church in Laodicea. See what Jesus says to them. He says, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realise that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. 
I don't need a thing. I don't even need Jesus. That's where they got to as a church. And I reckon this is my danger. As a Christian in a beautiful part of the world where there is no real danger of serious persecution, I find the luxury of life in forward, living in a a very comfortable house, in very pleasant surroundings, all of that dulls my edge. I don't want to rock the boat because I like a comfortable life. I'm not stupid. And I reckon no greater is that pressure experienced than for the middle-class Christian at work. It is hard to stand up for Christ at work if it means losing your job, when losing your job means losing the comfortable lifestyle you've become accustomed to. Uh, Because the job gives you the money to have the lifestyle that you've got. Looking at the church in the affluent West, Archbishop Ben Quashi again says, zeal and fervour for the gospel seems to be dying out. We're so desperate not to upset people. He says, upset them for goodness sake. And then he writes, it's easier to deal with overzealous people than to wake the dead. Just like uh, the church uh, in Sardis, where actually Jesus says to them in verse 2, wake up, wake up, you're dying. Where do we get the resources to overcome our half-hearted commitment and the impact of a luxurious lifestyle? Again, have a clear vision of eternity which these last chapters of Revelation give us, where the contrast is stark. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at chapters 18 and 19? We learned we can live for the luxury of this world, but it is temporary. It will all go up in smoke one day. Or we can fix our eyes on the vision we're going to look at in a moment, Revelation chapter 21, which is eternal and far surpasses anything we can have in this life. Now, do you see, the vision of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 is what we need to keep us going with Jesus. And John writes the chapter, because unless we are heavenly minded, we will be of no earthly use because we won't keep following Jesus. So Christian here this morning, if you're going through a hard time, struggling in the Christian life, wondering whether to keep going, or if you've just become half-hearted in the Christian life, let this vision that we're going to look at now in Revelation 21 give you all the motivation you need to cope with all the rubbish the world throws at you and to live your life sold out for Jesus. Turn with me now then to Revelation chapter 21, page 1249, um, and we see what uh, John saw uh, in this revelation. Verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, before we leap into the details of the chapter, allow me to make three points. First, the important distinction between heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. Really important to get this clear. Heaven is the place where Christians go when they die now. Now, this week at the funeral and and service of thanksgiving for Anne Staniland, we said our goodbyes to a lovely Christian believer. And, And it was hard. It's hard to say goodbye. We'll miss her. But as Andrew led the service from here, we, reassured, we were reassured that Anne is now in heaven. She is. Last week, and, and I see them here, our dear brother and sister, Jeff and Joan Wilkinson, had the heartbreaking and agonizing task of going to their daughter's Sarah's uh, funeral. What a terrible thing to have to do. But they've told me they've been helped and comforted that Sarah was a Christian. 
And as a Christian believer, she is now in heaven. Anne and Sarah, along with all those who died as Christians, are right now enjoying the presence of God in heaven. And it is wonderful. But listen, Revelation 21 is not a picture of heaven, but of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 is a picture of something that has not happened yet. A place that does not exist yet. Heaven exists, but not the new heavens and the new earth yet. In Revelation 21, we're told of what God will do when Jesus returns and wraps up history as we know it. When all God's people, those who have already died and those who are still alive at his coming, will be gathered together in this new place. It will come about in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. God will remake everything and there will be, verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth with the first heaven and the first earth, the earth we're now living on, having passed away. So as we look at this chapter, please make the distinction in your mind between heaven now, where believers who've died are now in the presence of God, and this picture of the new heavens and the new earth in the future. A second, note the continuity between earth now and the new earth. You see it there in verse 1. And then I saw a, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, when I think about the new creation, I'm always encouraged by this verse, by the thought that the Bible talks about a new earth. Yes, it will be new, but it will still be earth. God doesn't say that he'll make a new planet splog for us to live on in eternity. He's not going to create somewhere totally different to this earth. And why would he? The first earth he made, the earth we live in now, is a wonderful place. It has dolphins in the Great Barrier Reef, the Himalayas and the Grand Canyon. It has chocolate bars and apple and blackberry crumble and clouds and stars. It has beaches to lie on and snow to ski on. It has music to listen to and to sing to and to relax to and to move you. This earth is a wonderful place. So how wonderful to think that at the end of the world as we know it, God will make a new earth, a place that will be just like this earth, but with all the bad bits taken out, all the rubbish tipped away, all the wickedness thrown away. Heaven on earth, if you like. Indeed, heaven and earth joined together. That's the picture here. And the third uh, thing to note is this, that as with the whole of the book of Revelation, here in Revelation 21, we are given images. Revelation 21 is not necessarily to be taken literally, but nonetheless, it teaches us things about the new creation that are solid and true. You can see that in verse 2, as John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. Well, which is it? There in verse 2, is the new Jerusalem a city or a bride? Well, it's both. It's its image. This picture uh, of the the city and the bride is interchangeable. Right through the chapter. Verse 9, the angel says to John, I'll show you the bride. And then verse 10, he showed me the holy city. Which one? Well, both. And again, just to help us get a, a grip on how this works Uh, in these last few chapters. It's just as with Babylon a couple of weeks ago, chapter 18. Babylon was depicted as the world in rebellion to God, a city. Babylon was also depicted as a prostitute. In contrast to Babylon, now we have in the heavenly Jerusalem, a faithful city, faithful to God, 
and a people who've kept themselves pure, the bride of Christ. The New Jerusalem then is both a place and a people, just as any city is. Sheffield is a place, a geographical location, but Sheffield is a people, half a million people to be precise. Well, with those three things in mind, there are two big points to see from this wonderful chapter, and we're over the page now uh, on the handout if you're still following. The first point, and this is the big point of the whole chapter, God's presence makes the new creation paradise. This is the big point. If you take away nothing else, please remember this. It is being with God that makes the new creation such a wonderful place to be in. Now, I reckon this point will, as we go through it, will highlight the need for a fundamental change, a paradigm shift, if I can put it like that, for the way that many Christians think at the moment. This will mean that that your whole shift, your whole thinking will have to shift over here from here. Let me explain why. When my my mum died back in July, I had a number of my mum's friends, Christian friends, saying to me, and they meant well, and I didn't take any offence in what they said, but they said to me, your mum's with your dad now. That was the encouragement they gave me. Now, now look, uh, I I continue to be encouraged by the thought that my mum is in heaven. So I wasn't offended in any way by that. But... Um, and I, am, I, I do believe that mum is with dad now because relationships will be restored in heaven. But your mum's with your dad now is not uniquely Christian because lots of people believe that. When I take funerals of unbelievers, they believe that. They say to me, oh, things like this, dad will be with Uncle Jimmy now and they'll be having a whale of a time. Well, now, the Christian gospel does teach that relationships will be uh, renewed and uh, and united uh, in in the new heavens and the new earth. But the Christian gospel teaches me that the thing that will make the new creation so wonderful is not that we'll be in a wonderful place with all the people we love, but that we will be with our God. That's the focus right through this chapter. The first thing we hear is there in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Twice in the same verse, God will be with them. They will be with him. See, we were made to be in relationship with God. And in the new creation, he will fi- we, we will finally be in a perfect relationship with him. We'll finally experience what we were made for. We'll see him face to face. And the words here in verse 3 are very important in this. The words translated dwelling and live are words related to those used in the Old Testament of God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple. Now, do you remember in the Old Testament, it was the, the tabernacle and then the temple that you had to go to, to, as it were, be in the presence of God. And even then, only the high priest Uh, could go actually into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God once a year. But now God dwells, same word, same language, God dwells with his people. In the new creation, we will be in the very presence of God. We couldn't be closer to God. And that is the major point right through the chapter. I don't think I've ever seen this before as clearly as this until I studied it this week. See, in verses 9 to 21, we are given an elaborate description of the... Well, it's not... Actually, I don't know why I've written that. It's not an elaborate description of the New new Jerusalem. It is a description of the New Jerusalem. It probably isn't elaborate enough. Verse 11. It shone with the glory of God. Again, the language of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. The glory of God. 
And in verse 16, we see it was laid out like a square. And then we're told the dimensions. And here's the thing. The dimensions and the shape describing the New Jerusalem tell us that the whole of the New Jerusalem is like the Holy of Holies, the centerpiece of the temple, the presence of God. And then in verses 19 and 20, we're told how beautiful the heavenly city is. And, and, and we get these, um, uh, these amazing uh, precious stones. Some of them I've never heard of. Some of them I can't even pronounce. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz. Uh, Richard Borkham, in his uh, little excellent little book on Revelation, points out that the list of these precious stones is identical with the first nine of the list of the 12 precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest in Exodus 28. So in Exodus 28, uh, you can check it out, read the list. Uh, The high priest had on his breastplate uh, these stones. What's the point of that? We're to see the connection. Who was it who could enter into the presence of God once a year? The high priest. He'd have put this breastplate on you see the whole chapter is telling you you are now in the presence of God and that's what John notices in verse 22 that's his point verse 22 I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and in the same point in verse 23 the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp Now, look, if you've lost, if I've lost you in the detail, forgive me. The point is very simple. What makes the new heavens and the new earth so wonderful is being in the presence of God. That's what this chapter is trying to tell us. That's why it's written the way it is. Do you notice, it says, do you notice you're in the presence of God? In the new creation, verse 3, God will dwell with his people. We will be with our God. We will feast our eyes on the most spectacular sight available anywhere in the whole universe. We will see God and be with him. And nowhere, nowhere is that relationship seen better than verse 4. See what it says? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Until I've read that so many times before, but until studying this this week, I don't think I've ever quite seen this before. He will wipe. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. I'm sure that's meant to be the emphasis. God will wipe, so tender, so personal, so intimate. It is God himself who wipes away every tear. He doesn't send an angel to do it. He doesn't get anyone else to do it. He does it. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. We won't just be in the presence of God. We won't simply see this most amazing sight of God. In the new creation, we will be in the closest of relationships with God. I was thinking about this this week. In my whole life, I think I have only ever wiped the tears of four people from their eyes. My mum last year, when she was too weak to do it herself, and my three children. When they are upset, I've, I've bent down held them in my arms and dried their tears. Here is the tender intimacy of our Heavenly Father caring for his children. And that's what will make the new creation paradise, dwelling with God. So Christian, keep going. You will be with God one day. If you're being persecuted, don't give up the Christian life. This is worth dying for. 
If false teaching is worming its way into the church, never tolerate it, for it robs people of this. And when a luxurious lifestyle makes you half-hearted in the Christian life, know that intimacy with God is worth more than anything this world can offer. And perhaps especially for those of us caught up in the material luxury of this life, maybe think of this. Remember when you first fell in love? I can remember when I first met Caroline. I, I just wanted to be with her. It's not so good that that's past tense. It's only past tense for the illustration. I just wanted to be with her. <laughs> a being with her drowned out any interest in everything else that had seemed so important. I wasn't thinking about my job, how much money I had, what car I drove, where my next holiday might be. I just wanted to be with her. And when I was with her, that was all that mattered. Can you see how being with God is the big deal? God's presence makes the new creation paradise. Secondly, God makes everything new. And we can't miss it when we have this read out loud, when we read it out loud. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Verse 5, he was seated on the throne, said I'm making everything new. New is the big word here. And everything new, verse 5, tells us that the new creation, in the new creation, all the bad bits will be taken out, all the old thrown away. And so verse 4 again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do you see what's going? The old has gone, the new has come. And so there is no more death, mourning or crying. No more hearses, hospitals or hankies. Not needed. Think of a world just like this one, earth, but new. With all the splendours and joys and excitement and thrills and colours and experiences and shapes and senses. All that's good, but with none of the rubbish. No longer the doctor saying, I've got some bad news for you. No death to separate us from our loved ones. No broken relationships through arguments or misunderstandings or cruelty or abuse or unfaithfulness. This earth with all the bad bits taken out, won't that be spectacular? And this is a place that is totally safe. I love verse 17. Uh, the angel measured the walls of this city, and it was 144 cubits thick. Look down to the uh, footnote if you want to know how thick that was. That is one solid wall, 65 metres thick. Now, again, it, it doesn't have to be literal. It may not actually be that. The point is, you get the feeling of security, don't you? We'll be completely safe. Because everything will be new. There'll be nothing bad there. I'll be living in a city that has impenetrable walls and in a world where all evil has been exterminated. This place is totally safe. I can really sleep easy at night in this place. And it's beautiful. We saw in verses 19 to 21 these remarkable jewels. Now at the end, uh, we, we read verse 21, the 12 gates were... Uh, were 12 pearls, these enormous gates, each one a pearl. And again, verse 21, the great street of the city was of pure gold. Uh, whether it's actually literal or not isn't the point. It's just spectacularly wonderful and beautiful. This, of course, knocks the socks off the seven wonders of the ancient world. It makes the great pyramid of Giza look small and the hanging gardens of Babylon look bland. 
This city as well is, is vibrant and alive, not dull in any way, vibrant, alive, cosmopolitan. I love verse 24. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And verse 26, the same, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. There's nothing dull about this place. In this city, there are all the very best and greatest aspects of all the nations of the world in one great cosmopolitan city. As many of you will know, we we visited some mission partners a couple of weeks ago in Istanbul. Uh, While we were there, they they took us to the Grand Bazaar and the Spice Bazaar. It was brilliant. The the colours, the smells, the noises, the taste of real Turkish delight. It was a wonderful sensory overload experience, throbbing with life. I loved it. The new creation will be like that. All the best bits of all the cultures coming into the whole place. The grand bazaar. But without the pickpockets, that will be good. The new creation will be a place that is anything but bland. All the best of the world's cultures brought together as all the nations of the world are saved through the gospel of Christ. And there'll be freedom in this city. Verse 25, the gates are never shut because there's nothing to fear. Can you imagine never having a worry in the world and never feeling alone? For the city is a people, God's people themselves made new, a new community of people. So it'll be a place where there's no loneliness or isolation. In this city, people look out for each other and they live in unhindered love and support forever. Almost sounds too good to be true. Until you look back to see who promises it. Just look back to verse 5 as we come to a close. God promises in verse 4 there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things passing away. Verse 5, he was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done. No, this place doesn't exist yet, but it's as good as done. Because he, the Alpha and the Omega, said it would be done. He is the beginning and the end. He's promised he'll deliver on the new creation. This place that we all want. The place we all thirst for. That's the point Halfway through verse 6, to him who is thirsty, I'll give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There it is again. Relationship with God is what it's all about. But notice, too, the refrain that we saw in chapters 2 and 3. He who overcomes will be given all this. The point is this. Stick with Jesus through persecution. Fight against false teaching. Wake up to the danger of putting luxury first. Overcome these temptations and, do you see it there, we will inherit the new creation. So Christian, keep going. And to keep going, be heavenly minded. Have this vision of the new heavens and the new earth ever before you. And for those who are on the point of giving up the Christian life, for those who've who've never really even started with Jesus... Look at this vision. But also see how this vision is realized. For to have the new, you have to do away with the old, the bad. And that's the promise of verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be not in the new creation, 
but in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And you see exactly the same at the end in verse 27, right at the end of the chapter. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Well, of course not, or it wouldn't any longer be this wonderful new place. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So let me plead with you. If you've never started with Jesus, if you're on the verge of turning away from Jesus, don't miss out. Don't miss out on this wonderful new creation, the presence of our glorious God. And be sure the second death is not a veiled threat, but it is a necessary consequence of the new creation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for those who are struggling, those for whom life has given them a mighty blow in these last weeks, those who are just struggling to keep going with you. And we ask you, please, to help them and us to have this vision ever before us. We pray for those among us who've never really started with you, And we pray that as they look at these chapters 18, 19, right through to 21, they would see the stark reality of life without you and where it will lead to, and life with you and where it will lead to. And we ask you to help all of us to have Revelation 21 clear in our mind that we may be ready and willing to stand firm for you, knowing that it is worth it And that our glorious reuniting with you forever in wonderful relationship is sure to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.